Welcome to another selection of inspirational conversations brought to you by the Historian Committee. Today's interview is with Dr. Andrea Behrman, who is interviewed by Dana Lott, a member of the Historian Committee. Dr. Andrea Behrman is a professor in the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Louisville. She is a director of the Cozera Charity Center for Pediatric Neurorecovery and is co-director of the Dana and Christopher Ree Foundation Neuro Recovery Network. Dr. Berryman is the 2017 recipient for the Anne Shumway Cook Lectureship, and her research has influenced neurologic physical therapy clinical practice through the evaluation and development of therapeutic interventions, promoting recovery after spinal cord injury in both children and adults. Her work has been funded by the NIH, the Department of Defense, the VA Rehabilitation Research and Development Service, Craig H. Nielsen Foundation, the Helmsley Charitable Trust, Foundation for Physical Therapy, and the Florida Brain and Spinal Cord Injury Research Trust Fund. So I know that some of this you went over again during your speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and congratulations, by the way. Thank you so much. Big it's honor. a pleasure to do it. Yeah. Um, so the, I really liked how you brought up the, the Road Less Traveled By um, poem, because I think you're right. I think people always just kind of go, two roads diverge in a wood, and mm-hmm. they kind of forget the... Mm-hmm the rest. So for those that couldn't make it to your lecture, can you kind of um, divulge a little bit more on on that? Well, I think it was uh, in that poem, he talks about two roads in in front of you. And it turns out that the roads are really the same. They look Mm -hmm. the same. But in the poem, he alludes to the fact, he says, well, in the future, I'm going to tell him I took the road less traveled and that's made all the difference. That's what you see on posters and everything everywhere else. But I said, if you go to the third stanza, stanza, and I can't remember it exactly, but he, but he basically talks about that um, once you head down a road, there's another fork and there's another fork, and one leads to another and by and by, and then it's highly unlikely that you'll ever get back to that original fork in the road. Right. Or you'll never, so one fork just moves you on into your future in life, and so you'll, you'll never come back. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, and I, when I kind of reflected on this, and, and I also shared that my father had recently written an autobiography, or he took many years of our family. And the thing that was valuable, there's so many aspects, but value about it was hearing his decision-making process along the way, which we as children never knew what was mm-hmm. going on. And so I figured with this talk that I also wanted to share a little bit about what does it look like to go through a physical therapy career? And... Uh, by all means, it was a disclaimer, this is not the way, it is a way, and everybody has a path in front of them. Mainly I want you to see that sometimes decisions are happenstance, sometimes they're well thought out, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're incredibly anxiety producing, but they move you down some sort of of path. And um, as as examples throughout that talk, there were times that it, it actually changed um, dramatically the direction I was going, mm-hmm. but you saw the various um, reasons for that. And since you were at the talk, for me, the surprise was I had intended at some point <laughs> through a series of events to become a pediatric therapist and went into PT school wholeheartedly with that in mind. I never actually became that, mm-hmm. but over the last 10 years, I got told, I got redirected from adult spinal cord injury to looking at children, and now I really feel, no, I'm not a career pediatric therapist. 
but the work I'm doing now, and I'm leading a clinic that is totally for children, and I'm facilitating research that's totally for children. I said, some pie, some strange way I got back to that fork in the road. Again, not that okay. I'm a career pediatric therapist, right. but I got back to kids, yeah. and that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know, I know I went to the talk, so I know the, the answer, but you did spend a considerable amount of time before getting your PhD and when you had graduated. So did you really not think that you were ever going to do research? Did it just kind of pop up out of nowhere and you're like, I think maybe oh. I'll do? Well, so the, the reason was, again, these observations I had in the clinic that the patients we were seeing, and again in the 1980s, there was this shift in the population in rehab gyms from over 50% of individuals having complete injuries mm-hmm to over 50% having incomplete. And incomplete for us at that time meant they could move something below the lesion. But that major shift meant all of a sudden in the gym, for for people that had worked for years Mm -hmm. with complete injuries, the books like Ford and Duckworth that that gave you all the ways of, of how you maneuver and how you teach people to use leverage and momentum and how you compensate for paralysis didn't match up. And so... I was uh, curious and observed these things, but at the same time, there were a few little hints of observations that just made me think, there is something more here. And the problem is, I don't know how to access it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, as a therapist, I don't know how to tap into it. And I think people could be better off. But in, in my head at that point, it was especially people with incomplete injuries. That has moved on beyond that to I think it's probably people with, quote, complete injuries. And, again, the lens we've looked at through them has given us one answer. But So in answer to your question, no, I never thought I was going to become a researcher. But as a clinician, and that's my big point to therapists, is you you sit there and you're curious or some observation doesn't make sense or or something is novel to you. It, it, it's not what you expect. And that thing drove me. It still drives me today, which is am- amazing. Um, and so I was like, well, I have to find these answers. Um, so it just drove me to research. It's not where I you know, thought I was going to go, but it's where I could go to try and at least address these things. Mm-hmm. I think... That's kind of the, I was talking to a friend of mine about this, is that when you're a newer professional like myself, this this doesn't necessarily revolutionize the way they're treated, because it's the only way that we've ever known is someone with an incomplete injury could walk again, or when someone destroys their knee, you don't immobilize it, you mobilize it. So uh, I find it really cool for a, I'm not going to call you old, because you're not old, an experienced clinician. I'm out there a while. <laughs> but anyway. But it must have been really cool to be able to look at something that your profession thought was just how it was and then to be like, it's not, actually. It, it, it must be so well, cool. Yeah, I just got goosebumps when you said it. Because mm-hmm. we, I think one of the big things is we had assumptions. And I'm not sure if, if I underscored this enough in that talk, but um, we had assumptions about how the world existed. And we have functioned for many years over in this... Uh, clinical community, all our books and everything else, and we tell you how to do it. Over here, 
that's what, were the Paul Ryers and the Doug Andersons and all these basic scientists and the Susan Harkamas and, and now the Michelle Bassos and, that were looking at and understanding the nervous system mm -hmm. through their lens, which is very different. And somehow I started to get rub shoulders over here. And, and then I'm listening to them and I'm telling them what I'm seeing and back and forth and then then they're trying to explain to you, oh, Reggie Anderson, trying to explain to you, hey, it works like this. Can you take this principle and do something with it? That became the fun part of, oh, okay, so how do I take what he's thinking or over here and translate that into something that's practical and useful and, and will it do it? Um, and so there's always this translation to the clinic, but also testing things as well. So... I think one of the big things, and I didn't say it at that talk, I forgot, was um, when I went and met with Paul Ryer at my interview for the position at the University of Florida, no one in physical therapy to that day had ever crossed the street to talk to anybody in neuroscience. Now, you, you, this generation may not Again, understand like it's that. Just a, we're just so ingrained and it's not novel to us, but... Oh. They had, now you have neuroscientists without PT degrees in PT departments mm -hmm. teaching, but not, they hadn't even thought of communicating. So that's how, you know, you, that was that time. And so from that day forward, and I tell you, I mean, I felt like I, I started making a little bridge. And, and now, yes, we have a, a, a respiratory physiologist who isn't a physical therapist at the University of Florida on the faculty. You have this blending now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I used to teach a, a graduate course, and I always had uh, like a non-PT and me teaching it, you know, so they could get the different perspectives mm -hmm. all in one, and they could all, you were always blending them. And I think that's the, you know, for me in my career now, I gotta have a basic scientist always around. Yeah. Um, and so there, we're always trying to put these things, things together. I'll never go do the research they're doing, but how do we, build that bridge how you translate something in the clinic is a big deal mm -hmm. um it's it's not an easy process and you have to work with therapists who are not seeing all the barriers that instantly come up in their administrative head well we can't get built we can't whatever you can't get reimbursed but all no <clears throat> Um, delightful to work with Mary Schmidt at McGee Rehab who would just say, well, tell me what you want and I'll figure it out. So she would just go forward. We can figure these things out, but this, the naysayers, no, I'm not going to play in the sandbox with you. Yeah. <laughs> we have to get another group. So um, anyway, uh, you know, coming back to the, the putting the basic scientists um, on the team has been incredible for me. And like I said, they... they have a slightly different lens, they have a majorly different lens that tells them about things that, and, and like I said yesterday, why would, why would you ever put someone in a wheelchair? That's the antithesis of what you want to achieve. Mm. Stop it. Stop it. I'm like, ah. Oh. Anyway. Well, it's because we, I went to this, the, um, the four-step pre-course conference, the two-day one before CSM, and they had five engineers there. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, <clears throat> they want to be here. And mm -hmm. you're like, hell yeah, they want to be here. This is where mm -hmm. you need to be is where you, you get to hear straight from the horse's mouth what's working in mm -hmm. the schools with harnessing, what isn't working for adults in, I don't know, body weight supported treadmill training or something like that. 
it was really interesting to hear their thoughts and to be able to get an answer straight from them on why something can be or why something can't be. It was, I mean, I don't think I've ever met an engineer before, but when I met one, I was like, oh, well. So, Dana, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip gears on you here a second. I'm happy to. Why do we call it bodyweight-supported treadmill training? What is, do you know what that implies when we think about that? I mean, when, so I've been to many meetings this morning. They use that term. Mm -hmm. Somebody else said it. What is it? What does that mean? What, if you had to say, tell somebody what that meant, what would you say? Or I'm, I have a point here. You, oh, I know, you know it's I know, coming. I know. But this is like this is like when my professor would say, "Why are we calling it a core? Well, you know, let's come up with a different a core exercises." You're you're saying, but, is it really body weight supported? Tread, is it body weight supported? I'm saying, here's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's a garbage term. We shouldn't be calling things by equipment. That's just a piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. You, as a therapist, figure out, and you have a goal in mind. Let's say it was respiratory training. Mm -hmm. Well, I can use a, a treadmill to do respiratory training. I can use a lot of different tools. That I can use a thing you blow through. I, and, but both of them are respiratory training. It's just a piece of equipment. Right. So anytime someone says, I'm doing bodyweight supported treadmill training, I'm going, well, what are you really doing? Well, I'm doing endurance training with a kid with CP, and I just put them on, and they're they're on it, and they're going. But that's my goal. Mm -hmm. it, this is this really, um, it's really interesting because I feel like we're we are doing terms that catch fire, and people don't necessarily they don't make any sense, and they're a disservice. You are a professional who knows it, what your goal is. Mm -hmm. So tell me what your goal is, and then. I use soup cans from home to have them lift up like this, but I do, didn't say we're doing soup can training. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And we are giving too much credit to a piece of equipment that has Quite no... Quite frankly, isn't showing necessarily. Yeah. yeah, and then if you... They'll say, okay, we did a review of bodyweight-supported treadmill training, and, and then here's tons of articles with these names, and this one had this goal, this one had this one, this, and they don't really match up. But now mm -hmm. you're going to do a review paper on all these things. Right. So I had to say that to you. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> because because I... you and whoever out there is perpetuating this, I want them to stop, but I can't get them to stop. And, um, but that's okay. I'll just keep saying it. <laughs> I wrote a little editorial in the PT Journal once about it. Um, because it's like, okay, so another one is um, TheraBand training. Well... Now, now I'm naming the equipment by its brand name. Mm -hmm. So I use this example all the time of um, uh, Kleenex. Kleenex isn't really, it's a tissue. It's a facial tissue. All right? They're getting free advertising by someone saying. <laughs> Everybody says Kleenex. Right. Puffs doesn't seem to be getting it, but Kleenex is. Yeah. And you go to the store and you buy Kleenex because that's become. So TheraBand, everybody, oh, TheraBand training. And I see people say, we're going to do brand X therapy and it's in their note mm -hmm. i'm going when did brand x become a therapy right. and you're writing a note about it it is mind-boggling to me that that is what what that is so anyway you said you use well, the that, initials that, that's, that's what but that's what sets you apart from like, other professionals is you're thinking that's not i mean is that really 
what are you doing then? What what are you doing? Yeah, let's use some discrimination here. And when you get up, like like this woman that you and I went to today, and she was putting up articles, and she kept saying BWSDT, and I'm like, what are they what? actually doing? Because you're trying to show data on something, but and then she had another one, and she goes, oh, they they you know, and I I couldn't tell. I had no clue mm-hmm. if it, this was different or the same or what or what was the intention and what they did, and so it just was it's frustrating. Anyway, I, I, that's that's a little soapbox I get on well, no, whenever I, I can. So I got I saw my I saw my happen. now I know that I should start a new trend. I'm going to start a well have a, a conversation with people. Like at least start. I think it's a conversation piece. Absolutely. Um, to go, what are we? Because if you look at the what do we do as therapists? We do strength training. We do endurance training. We do gait training, we do you know, respiratory training, we do, do mm-hmm. body weight supported treadmill training. I don't ever remember that being in school. I don't ever remember that being on the list of goals I would have in my chart. No. Right. So, and it is a, it's a, like I said, it's a disservice to our profession to think that this miracle piece of equipment does everything. Um, because you make decisions, and how you make those decisions make a difference about the outcome. Absolutely. So that's what we're about. Now understand the piece of equipment and what it can and can't do for you, mm-hmm. or what your intent is. And then does it match your intent? And then we've got, oh, I can pick between these three pieces of equipment. Or I'm in home health, I don't have that, I'm going to do this. Right. Okay, go on to your question. Well, no, that segues <laughs> nicely into my, so that's what the LEAVES trial looked at, essentially. Right, was the body weight supported treadmill training and so I know <laughs> so so the neuro recovery network Okay, there you go. Looks at something different. Okay. Um what could you take away from now I've well, I can't even necessarily use that term anymore, but what's different about this project, about the neuro recovery network, as opposed to other studies that have perhaps looked at locomotor trading with spinal injury? Oh, definitely talk to you about that. So, okay. And here's... Because it's an awesome project that I had never heard about until, one, I did my research, obviously, interviewing you. And you showed awesome videos, went over awesome patient cases for something that if I had never gone to CSM, if I had never Mm -hmm. heard your name before, Mm-hmm. I would have never known that this existed, and quite frankly, I want Duke like involved, and it's like so, over soon. But so here's you know. the here's um, a, a little bit of a historical aspect, not not about the network, but our profession, and then I think it helps. So what I've seen throughout my profession is something comes on the market, a gizmo gadget, okay, and in my era they had um, uh, what was that name of that. Shoot, it'll come back. Anyway, it was like functional electro stem, but it replaced braces, but it was, oh, I can't remember. Anyways, a stimulator uh, that you put on different muscles and people could walk with it, okay? Mm-hmm. And all these little patches and whatever else. This is, take anything. This is what our, this is how our profession does. I get it. You get it. Somebody gets it in California. Somebody gets it in Washington State. We all do whatever we want. The, the, the company kind of tells you, but not exactly, and they don't really know, but you do your own thing. And then you go, um, well, this doesn't really work, or it does work, or whatever else. 
You don't even publish that. You just do your thing. So we as a profession are not moving forward because we don't have a way to move forward. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to actually move forward. And in my head, I would have a stroke network. And listen, it doesn't have to be 30 centers. It can be five. I would have a CP network. I would have a spinal cord injury network. Take four or five centers. Now, this is what, now, yes, we got some external funding for it. I don't think it's too hard. I think the APTA could could develop. Now, they did, they developed Clin Research, Clin ResNet for a while, but you need to hold on to them. The difference in doing this in a clinical trial is those sites go away. You spent millions of dollars mm -hmm. to get those sites trained up, the therapists, the sites, everything, and then it washed away. Right. No. What you want to do, now, we've had some sites leave the network for various reasons, but we have four that have been with us the whole time, and Craig is a fairly new one. That's okay. Here's the difference. And I've watched it now, and I'm like, it's, I'm like this is so amazing. <laughs> because, first off, the administration has to buy into it. So you have a top-down agreement. And, and I watch myself as a young therapist trying to be a champion for something, but I can't. I'm at this low, low level. So an administrator has a top-down ability to say, we're buying into this. And then, then the hospital's agreeing, everybody's agreeing. When you agree to be a part of the network, we're going to do the same protocol. Mm -hmm. Now, we standardize who gets it, who's eligible. We standardize what it is, and we standardize the outcome measures. We have an entire governance manual. We have policies and procedures. We have protocols. We have courses, so we actually teach you. We want to make sure you're capable, and you have to pass certain things to be um, competent and show you're able to do it this way. We come and do site visits. We come and we actually are present to see what you're doing. I went to a site. We don't put braces on the treadmill, and I went to this particular site, and there they were putting a brace on the treadmill. I'm like, what are you doing? Aww. And they're going, I know, I know, but we had to. And I said, look, if you have to do that, it's okay. That's your clinical judgment. That person doesn't go in the network, though, mm -hmm. because you are outside of our protocol. So if you think in your clinical head and your expertise that you decide this has to happen, then just put them over there and don't put them in the network. Right. That's they still get all. treated. They're just not in the network. They're just not in the <laughs> network. But, and here it was very, so here's, is very difficult for a therapist to go, I'm following your, well, what are you doing? Taking away my autonomy? I'm not making decisions? Yes, you're making a ton of decisions. It's just within a protocol. And we've decided that people like this doesn't mean everybody in your rehab center. In fact, when we started the network, we worked with people with Asia C and D. That's where we started. And they had to be like this, and they were eligible, and they could be in the network. Now, the thing in the network is it, it, they're getting a therapy that's, quote, standardized out there. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're doing a, it, it's not a research study. You're not randomized. You're, you're getting the sa this therapy that is legit, can be in the clinic, and then we collect data across those sites because everybody's doing the exact same outcome measures. Because we have data, we can get there faster. Mm -hmm. So I have five sites. Here's all this data. We can quickly tell you about the rate of recovery, about problems, about whatever it is sooner than later. Mm. Imagine if our profession... Again, a gizmo gadget comes on the market, and you, and you, and everybody's, ooh. I don't care in the network. You can do it four different ways, but you move. 
So here's a, what people say is, well, it's not a randomized clinical trial. I know that. But now I can at least tell you in the real world what this looks like. Mm -hmm. And people that look like this get this much better. If I was doing a clinical trial or some other thing, I'd want to test it. I'd want to go, well, can I do any better than that? Next time you have another gizmo gadget, you say, well, is it better than that? Now, I know you're not randomizing people. I know, I mean, all the things that studies would say, it wasn't in the same time frame, blah, 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 blah. But it is more information to our practice than anything we've ever had. And right now, we're so this, that, and the other that we're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, and here's the other thing. I've seen therapists grow. Um, I think one of the other, th- it's just the most amazing thing is to see them grow and develop. In a network, you realize that you're not just XX center or rehab center, and it's not just all about you. Mm-hmm. There's a bigger purpose, and together we can do that. And isn't this interesting? Across sites, I can do the same thing. The other part is that physicians also standardize their care. Now, if you think we have problems standardizing care, you know they do. But they decide together, like we don't, everybody weans off baclofen in this case. How they wean off is the same. They decide on what other medication, I mean, so they are structuring medicine in a common way. Mm -hmm. So they have a health committee. We have various committees that meet and decide and this kind of, so there's a lot of, what I always say to people is um, the network is not for sissies. Do not, do not become part of this if you think this is easy. Mm. It is not. It is very hard, and it's very hard on you because you haven't done something like this before. But once you get there, you're going, oh, man, this is wonderful. Um, it's the first of its kind. I mean. I think so. And it's, that's why I'm saying, and, I mean, we've talked about it here before. It, it, I think it's the way, again, the APTA or NIH or something should go because then you have, look, you invest a lot. And, yes, I, I'm sorry not everybody can be in the network. You can't. Mm-hmm. But let's pick five geographic, let's pick California because then we can have an Asian population. That just happens to be that way. Let's pick somewhere else because we can do that. I mean, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? So we yeah. can get enough of variety of what we think we should have and do that now you can add or subtract later in the future but do something to move us forward mm-hmm. and uh, there's so many different things that can happen the, and the other key thing is like what we're doing now is you set yourself up and I love the military word deploy when you have something you can move it because you already have a network. We have a system where we, we have online courses and on-site. So you learn the background piece, learn the language, you come, you have an on-site course. It's standardized across, so you have to become a to become an instructor. You have to go through a set of things to be that person. Mm-hmm. I can go, I've gone to McGee Rehab, and I'm, I go and I co-teach with somebody, and I'm like, you know, we, we're, we see a patient, we're starting, and I'm, we make the same, very close to the same decision. I'm always thrilled. I'm like... Good, because we are. We're thinking the same way, and, and I'm impressed that we can actually do that, actually follow something. Um, so I think it's uh, the Neurocovery Network has, um, and, and it came out of Christopher Reeves' desire that other people get access to this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it was put in place with the Center for Disease Control. It's moved over to another federal agency, but looking at to improve the quality of life in people with spinal cord injury kind mm-hmm. of came out of that. So it's had a kind of a interesting beginning, but it, it as far as my one of the things I feel best about my career, it's one of the been the greatest things I've been part of. It's just like watch a dream come true. It's just well, you just I watch it being born, and then you get to. Well, I don't even think I knew what the dream was, and then now I'm looking back, going, "Well, that's pretty good." You're like, "Damn, I did pretty good." <laughs> yeah, it is, and I'm like, right now we're bringing on a pediatric site, and um, my role hasn't been kind of what I say the front end. There's a lot of front end to get a site up. I've usually gone as soon as they're starting to do an intervention and to check them on that and all those aspects. Mm-hmm. So with the pediatrics now, because I'm kind of in charge of that, I'm doing the front end, and I'm as I'm. Going through the governance manual, I'm going, you know, this stuff's really good. <laughs> going, and, it, and it's interesting listening to the site. They're going, oh, it makes sense. I can understand that. I mean, they're handling it, you know, listening to it and understanding. We don't, it's not a top-down decision model. It's uh, people can, anybody can bring something forward, but there's a process to do that. Mm-hmm. And I like, it'll be a nice segue into my next question about the RCT. Mm-hmm. Um, at the four step conference, I guess there was a a topic of discussion about you know RCTs are kind of the favored child of the family, and should we be looking at other modes of research um, so it just it reminded me of when you were talking about you know it's not a randomized control trial, and I thought to myself, yeah, and not everything has to be in order for us to, to well, use it and i uh... There's a whole debate. In some ways, someone will figure it out about rehab and whether RCTs are ever going to work. Um, they're very costly, uh, and the amount of variability, I don't I don't know. Mm. Um, what I know what now in pediatrics is I'm challenged because I don't think you can do an RCT in this population. I mean, there's so many difficulties that mean... I can't randomize kids because there's not enough kids. Mm. I can't deal with the difference in etiology. And the people will say in grants, oh, well, you should have all traumatic. I'm going, okay, how am I going to get the 10 kids in the nation this year? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it is extremely different, difficult. And so we've tried to do this uh, weight design where you're your own control. And you've, and that's difficult with kids also because you're going to measure them, then you're going to measure them three months later when they're three months older. Yeah. So it's... That's even harder in kids, but I'm saying they should be their own control. This this thing of randomizing, a parent doesn't want to randomize their kid either. You know, they look at that thing and they're going, I'm pretty sure that might, yeah. you know, help. Um, so I I like, you know, kind of this concept that it's not one-dimensional, that that is the, the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and... For a lot of reasons, I don't think that is perhaps the the most cost benefit for our understanding. I don't. Yeah. Um, now, you know, and I did a small trial where fifty percent of the kids got better. I thought that was going to be the dream come true. I put it into clinical practice, and not fifty percent achieved that. I already know that now. I don't have to go do so. But I do know. get better with trunk control, 100%. How much better varies, but it's 100%. Mm. Maybe less than 10% get better with stepping, but I think I know why now, and I'm going to go after that. Um, 
I looked at, so I don't remember, I went to a conference on um, what they call orphan populations for pediat- I mean, pediatrics because there's so, there's so many things that are rare, you, you know, and they're always uh, trying to get, well, I need to get a heart valve for three kids in the world, and who's going to build that for them? But one of the things is they, they talked about a statistical model where you, you do something, you know something, because of you did this with 10 people, and then you do something different. And whether you start the next 10, but somehow you have this progressive thing, it doesn't, so it's always changing based on what you're learning. I don't remember the name, but I kept going, well, that, that. Like an algorithm kind of thing? Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Or, or you move on. Like, I know this much now. I'm going to switch and do this with the next population or add this or something. But it, it allowed you to change mm-hmm. instead of, we said this three years ago, we were going to do this, and we're now we're at 120 people, and you're stuck. Right. So I don't know. Um, That's really cool. I think really there's cool. probably more ways to do things and even statistically and understand. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the randomized clinical trial for rehab and what it costs and everything else is maybe the way to go. Right. What other sorts of things did you take from um, the STEP conference in July? Because you spoke as well. So you were a speaker. So there was a lot about kind of this whole individual care and genetics that yeah. was kind of intriguing I think that's probably a ways off but it was intriguing um, you know to be able to look at your genetic makeup and go well you know you're going to have a stroke or I don't you know I don't know how far they're going to be predictive on that it was mm-hmm. that was kind of intriguing because um, have you gone to the other steps or was this oh yeah your... no I've been to all to three out of the four yeah um Here's how the steps look to me. This, the second one was all about a big, to me, a, the big impact was motor learning was introduced to our profession. Mm-hmm. And that came out of Carolee Winstein and others and, and uh, kinesiology and that whole body of literature got moved into therapy. They, they existed over here, never over here, got moved over and has been a, had made a huge impact. Three step. The emphasis was a lot of non-physical therapists spoke. And you heard, you know, basic scientists talking about rat models. You heard another guy who does work with cognitive things and elderly people. I mean, it was like a blending of, and, and it was wonderful because they appreciated, like the basic scientist was going, apparently I'm doing stroke models, but you're telling me I need fatter, older mice or whatever. Yeah. So it was a very nice... It, that had the big emphasis. Um, this one had, I, I kept trying to capture, I don't know if I captured it fully. <laughs> but it, So the piece, so it was more disconnected. The, here's this genetic part. There was something about classifying people, uh, you know, and being able to look at, that's also the part we kind of tried to add in was, you know, how do you classify their movement problems, not so much their etiology and others. And then... Um, uh, there was a, kind of a debate on intensity. Now there's one other thing that just slipped my mind. That um, shoot, it'll come back. Ah, I just had it. Um, uh, what was the other aspect? Do you remember? I'm trying to think. Uh, prevention was a big thing. Yeah, that's participation. Like, I'm trying oh, to think of my piece. participation. That was it. Yeah, so participation was like huge. Everybody wanted to talk about participation. And that, that was intri- intriguing. 
um, especially the pediatric population, was huge on participation. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it amazes me because, um, just like you heard in that talk, people would have that little girl in the power tier. Um, everybody prior to us then was all about having her in a power chair for participation. Mm. That was how she was going to participate in the world. And my thing was, well, she could, again, she can get there, but once she gets there, she can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that as much participation. Right. So I was still at, let's change her neuromuscular capacity, and then I think she can participate. Mm -hmm. If she can't, then yes, the power wheelchair is the answer. But if she can... Let's harness it when we can. Let's go after it first. And then, listen, if we don't have an answer, and that's, you know, kind of the thing I was talking to this mother was. Um, yeah, that shopping cart image was a big one. Yeah. Well, and I said, it's, it's always to the parents, I'm like, look, we try and open one door. If we open that door, then we try and open the next one. It's never that we leap over all these things. Mm -hmm. But. If we open one, that open that gives us the possibility of opening the next one. And so for your child, putting her in a power chair doesn't open any doors. It closes them. So we want to get her in environments. First off, we're going to try and change her nervous system. And then second, we want her in environments like the rocking chair or on the floor or something. Um, and so this mother turned around. It was interesting because at first she was... She was having a hard time with us it was saying we wanted to get her out of the and she had spent hours struggling to get the funding for that but once she saw her child starting to do things then she started coming back what if we do this at home can we try this can i do her in this can i do that she started to get and you loved it i mean it was like you know she's she's coming up with the ideas ways that her daughter can expand her horizons um so I listen to that and I understand it. I'm just more going to go after the neuromuscular capacity. And at some point, if that decision is, it takes you about two minutes to get a power wheelchair under a child mm -hmm. or get them whatever equipment is you think they need. Do it. But I'm not going to go there first. All right. Thank God for you, then. No, no. Because she could have gone to another clinic, and they'd say, well... Well, she already rest. had for... She was two and a half when we got her. She, she injured at three months. So, so... How long had she been in that power wheelchair for? Not that long, because she, was, she wasn't, quote, fully independent with her mom. I mean, her mom's going to be with her all the time anyway, mm -hmm. but it wasn't... Um, I mean... And you saw, look how she was, she strapped in there. Oh, yeah. She arms she were holding so on, <laughs> and her head was like this, because she couldn't hold her head this way. So her head's cocked back, and she's over here trying to drive that thing. I mean, okay, make everything stable, and then I'll move this, and I'll get there. I mean, she didn't even have a stable, you know. Place so, to start. From. Right. And listen, they still have that power chair, and if they go to some exotic location, they... She uses that. Mm -hmm. um, like, I think, you know, she and her dad went fishing one time. Well, probably the terrain is like, <sighs> um, but otherwise, she's in a manual chair. Mm -hmm. And I see, she, do you ever read the book, Eloise? Mm -mm. Another book? You don't know that book. E L O U I S E. E L O I S E. Anyway, okay. it's about this little, it's like a five year old, but in the, in the book, like, if you opened up a page, you would see 
you know, dot, 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 and the five-year-old was here and then here and here and here. She's all over the place. And if you see, if this little girl came in this room, she'd just be like a five-year-old. They wouldn't sit here. They'd be everywhere. That's how she is now. Mm. She's like a normal five-year-old, but she's in a wheelchair, but she's everywhere. So she'll come in the room, and she'll be here a second, and then she'll be over there, like way over there, and then she'll be over here, and then, because she's five. Yeah. They, don't, they don't sit still. She doesn't sit still. Um, participation? Yes. But she's also developing fully, more fully herself, likely that, as she was intended to be, mm-hmm. than a power wheelchair. Do you think that therapist just didn't give, and this is more just out of my own curiosity, was just thinking long-term, thinking this child will never be independent, so we we need to make sure that she's comfortable in a in a wheelchair, or no, here, was it just, just there just there was no attempt made at all to try to see no, they what did. she could do or capacity. No, they or, did everything they knew how to do. I mean, this is the difficulty right now that um, we actually know some things to help kids get better, and they're treated all over. The, I mean, I don't know how fast to move things forward, and people don't. It's hard, and what we're doing takes more people, and there's all kinds. So she'd actually had, quote, the best therapy available in her home community, mm-hmm. and everybody's doing what they know. And then if you read her medical record, the physician said this child, um, based on her diagnosis and what's presented to us, which is all the voluntary movement and everything else, will require a power wheelchair the rest of her life, and here we go. That's standard care, standard decision-making right now. But your lens is very different, and that's it. So it's not that she didn't get good care or anybody gave up, that is what care is. Um, Being realistic about, I say realistic about the end and not harnessing what may be an uncertainty, but... Well, they don't have any clue about any of that. I mean, they can't even ask, they have no, their conversation, the doctors and the therapists, their aunt... This child had a spinal cord injury, came into the clinic, can't move her legs, has a lesion up around C5-6, can't sit up. They have stood her in braces. They've put her in parapodiums. They've laid her down. They've tried to get her to roll over a thousand times. They've put little splints on her hands. They've put a TLSO on her trunk. They've put braces on her ankles. They've put her in a chair. They've done everything that they know about standard care for kids with spinal cord injury, and that is all written from a standpoint of what can you voluntarily do. Mm-hmm. And then we have a set um, of outcomes. The PVA guidelines from 1999 are the best, I mean, example of how everybody proceeds. Go to every PT textbook right now, adult or pediatric, and that's how you make decisions. So they there's no all that other stuff we just talked about is non-existent mm. in the so how do parents come to us how do you think they get a, to us referred by a doctor never one maybe two google something it's the parents who find us mm. so now in our home community now we have physicians <clears throat> more so mm-hmm. and Listen, physicians, that's not to say they're, I mean, at least the, the pediatric neurologists we're working with now, I 
went and showed him some videos and he goes, well, I'm going to have to stop telling parents that their child can't get better. Oh, I just got goosebumps. So we have a lot of educating to do, a lot of publishing to do. I mean, I, I you know, that, that will help change the scientific community's expectations, but it's a long haul to change a perspective that a child mm -hmm. can get better. It took a video pretty quickly with him. I mean, and really every pediatric specialist I've ever, physician that I've shown these, they go, um, they're like, like their answer is, well, you'll never have to do a clinical trial here because no child ever gets that, gets better. Like no one ever gets better. So you just showed me one, I'm, I'm done. Um, but we have other people's opinions and everything else, and so they need to, and I do think, you know, just like our own small study, mm -hmm. I would have said we're going to, 50% are going to get better. They're not, but I think we understand who and why, um, mm -hmm. and we're going to try and study that, figure that out, then come back and see. Then I'm going to put it back in the clinic, and I'm going to see if, it, if I get, because if I get, start to get 50%, I'll go, right. no, I'm good. That's why right now I feel so good about the trunk. I'm like, when I showed those videos, I mean, it's like the walking problem. It's such an easy problem now. Like, give me any of those people, and that is not a hard problem to solve or improve on. Hmm. Maybe not make them 100%, but we can do that. The trunk, we have a way right now. I think it's too time-consuming. I think it's too labor-intensive. We'll try and figure out better ways, but I know we can do it now. Mm -hmm. So, okay, good. Let's try and make that better. I don't think we, for people that are non-ambulatory kids, I don't think we have the answer yet. But um, it's fairly impressive that a child that has no voluntary movement can take steps. Now, he doesn't use it routinely enough for all these. I mean, it's hard, mm -hmm. but it, it indicates that the nervous system is very smart below the lesion, and we're not tapping into that circuitry or possibility to make a difference right. routinely. Does that help yeah, you understand? Yeah. Because I'm trying yeah. to say, the, again, if you, read the, if you read the notes, I mean, reading the medical notes of the decision-making again Help, helps answer that what your comment there that here's what they were thinking she's not doing this not doing that we're giving her this we got her we gave her the braces we gave her the TLSO we gave her the splints we gave her this we gave her everything she you know we gave her everything mm -hmm. and there she is with pneumonia three times within the first two years of her life right. that's not very good her whole respiratory status I mean the pulmonary pedi pediatric pulmonologist reevaluated her and said to the mother, what did you do? <laughs> like she, he had no clue. She came in, she was a different child. And oh, just look at the pictures. And I was looking at that. She had the darkest circles under her eyes and she looked like she just was on her last minute of life. Uh -huh. And then just that next one, I was like, I mean, it's a cliche thing to say, but you're like, that's not the same kid. It's not the same kid. There's no possible way that you took a child that was... Well, here's what the therapist said. So the mother came back. I mean, she was with the seven months. Mm -hmm. The mother took her back home, and the therapist said, you left with one child and you came back with another, oh. and we don't even know this child. And the mother's like, I know. <laughs> like, 
and all the like, and I get to reap the benefits, right? And all <laughs> the things that this kid was supposed to become, she was starting to be able to become. Mm. You know, I mean, that's why I go developmentally. I mean, she blossomed out of darkness, out of this place where, I mean, and she's such a cool kid. I mean, anyway, but all they all are, and so she just, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm glad you can tell that from the videos. I always wonder, I'm always, because I know the whole scenario, I'm always wanting to know what people see. And that is, I mean, I look, and that's why Shelly, the therapist, and I were like, uh, I mean, we didn't, she was like the second child we saw when we started the clinic up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know what? Have we, have we made a mistake here? And we both were like, there's no, there's no other possibility for her. What harm can we do? Mm-hmm. Even with bi- dis- bilateral dislocated hips. Now, plenty of kids with CP walk around with bilateral dislocated hips, so we were like, doesn't really matter. And here she is up there, you know, playing ball and doing stuff that mm-hmm. she never did before. Hey. And the fact that she could even just do this, you know, oh, yeah. started her down a path like, I mean, imagine every time you, to sit here, you have to be like this. Mm-hmm. And if you pick up your hands, you have to have something to hold you. And then you're like, I can't even manipulate the world. Right. And now she's up here. Hey, interacting, what's going on? She's whatever. I, I didn't tell this story, but it, it's one of my favorite ones. The, we had like Dora the, I don't know, Dora the Explorer, but she's dancing. Have you mm-hmm. seen these? Anyway, so there's like these videos, and then they come on with two of her friends, and the music comes on, and they're all you can pick a thousand songs, and they do all different hand and leg motions to them. So we'd have her up there, and we'd, you know, we'd all be doing these things because whatever it is, and sometimes we'd do her legs with them. Anyway, so the people that were training her would go, Oh, talk about the little girl. She's such a good dancer. Now she's right there, but they're not talking to her, they're going like you. So she went home, and this is what the mother comes back and says. Uh, so she has a whole bunch, the little girl has a whole bunch of stuffed animals, and the mother says she went home and she's talking to her stuffed animals, and she tells them, you should come see me. I'm such a good dancer. And the mother's like, listen to this. And so the mother says, okay, we can take in one stuffed animal a day, and they can watch you. So all of a sudden, so she starts coming in. And one stuffed animal comes in a day, and we place it up there, and then she does her little thing so her stuffed animal friend can see what a good dancer she is. Now, here's a big thing. She wasn't anybody before this, Hmm. and now she's a dancer. A dancer has legs, and the legs move. So to me, a lot of these kids come in, and they have no relationship with their lower body. They just drag it around. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything. But they become stuff. And this one little boy, he became a baseball player on the treadmill. You know, and so now I'm a baseball player. He gets off the treadmill, we're a baseball player. Mm-hmm. So, and his brother plays baseball. I mean, everything starts to connect. But when you started, they were nothing. And now, so this little girl comes in and she goes, she has these shoes on. She goes, these are my walking shoes. <laughs> okay, now her shoes have meaning. So everything starts to connect. Mm-hmm. And I'm a dancer. She wasn't a dancer before. She she was a person who was popped in a wheelchair and moved around. Oh, and her mother one time, so I love this, took her to some event and comes back and says they were um, 
blowing bubbles or something. And she goes, my daughter was the best bubble blower in the whole room. And I said, I, she's never been the best at something. And because we haven't blow bubbles all the time, like mm. catch them, do whatever. And so she spent hours blowing. And the mother was like, can you believe it? So, you know, mothers who have kids with disabilities don't, their kids aren't, you know, running fast and doing mm. stuff. But hers was, you know, the best bubble blower. Anyway, I got a ton of stories. What else you got? What else do I have? Um, What's our time? 2.15. We'll change gears a little bit. Two things. I want to ask fun questions, but I do want to get my one last, I guess a a more serious one is being a newer professional myself. um, What advice do you have? I know it's such a cliche question, but what advice do you have for us where we're just, we're in a world that we're very fortunate to be in where the wrong traditions are now starting to be changed. But I think, how do we learn how to pave the way now? Because sometimes I feel like these experienced clinicians really are the ones that paved the way. And Mm -hmm. that um, there's a lot of call now on us to be in the communities and to be preventionists and to play different roles, you know, and sometimes that can be overwhelming, I think. Um, So what advice do you have for newer clinicians having been? Well, it's kind of like, I don't know, this guy, you know, when he asked me this question, why are you, why are you curious? I'm like, I don't know, I just am about, but, you know, it just kind of matched up. Uh, First off, I think you all have to find what your passion is, because whatever that is, it's going to drive you. Mm. So you have to know, you, everybody in our profession, something, listen, even if, if and, and not everybody, but a lot of people are like, I'm going to be a frontline clinician forever, and I'm, I'm not going to be the one who changes the world. That's what you're talking about. But I'm still going to function out here. But if you're going to change something, you have to become, so remember those P's? I said the noble purpose. You have mm-hmm. to have passion, pers- persistence, patience, and pride. That's what happens when you become passionate about something. So I didn't plan to become passionate about this. It just was curious. It was interesting. It bothered me that I thought there was more here, and I just kept going down that path. And then there's all those other things that helped guided me along that way to do it. So I think when you know when you're passionate about something is when you wake up in the morning, you take a shower, and then you go, that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) That's it. Because I don't, sometimes I sit down and I think about things when I'm on an airplane, it's best because there's nobody to talk to you and it kind of all comes out. It comes out after I've slept in the night and then I'm like, oh, that's good because it's all been turning around in there. Mm -hmm. You got to find out what you're passionate about. That's what you need because it will drive you. If I go, well, I'm going to do so-and-so. And listen, I've had plenty of people, this is where I'm going to tell you, the knots, don't let people tell you what you should be doing. I, I mean, they need to listen to what I'm passionate about or interested in. I've had people tell me I should be a chair of a department. I'm not passionate about that. It would have been the worst thing for me to be a chair of a department. Mm. Could I have learned it? Could I have done it? Could it it's possible? No. That's not where... I needed to be, but I've had plenty of people tell me that. So it's difficult. You need mentors who will 
listen mm. and encourage, but not dictate. Um, and because you were fortunate to have some good mentors early on in your yeah, I did. Career. I had I had a lot of good mentors, but they also you know and and I've had some not so good mentors. <laughs> I mean, so there's an array of mm-hmm. of people. But I think and I was going to say you know I think having the people like. Um, the Becky Craigs or the Irene Davis, even though she's more of a colleague type, I mean, that that I've checked in with, like I've called them up at the forks in the road or the hard times, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, i got to think this through. Um, it's not that they were there every day. It's not that they were guiding, but they, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about this. And I've also used my brother. I used my parents for that, and they, that's okay because they didn't, you know, they weren't as invested as some of these other people. Um, so I think the primary thing is for each of us to find our passion and then be led by it. I don't know. You know, I think the people that I watched were the Ann Van Zants, the um, Ann Shumway Cooks, mm-hmm. the Carolee Winstons. Pam Duncan's, the Becky Craig's, um, but then I saw the Paul Ryers, I saw the Doug Andersons, I saw the basic scientists and what they were going, and um, and then just remain true to you. I mean, each of us has kind of a different way of going about it. I do think these kind of principles help define how you do it, but the details of it have more to do with you as an individual than a path everybody should be following. Mm. So it it allows for the different talents and skill sets that people have. I mean, there's certain things I do not do well, and I need those kind of people around me because I don't do them well, and I never will. I just need to find them yeah. and get them on board or get them on my team. But there are other things that I do well or I keep I keep trying to improve in those realms mm. in some way. What are the things that you don't think you do well? Well, let's see. <laughs> um, so I'm probably not the best statistician type person. I would like someone on my team that's, I mean, I've developed enough ability, but I think there's probably more ways to look at things than I know. And I think they can bring that to the table. And I've mm. seen people well, Andrea, you can, you know, and I'm like, ooh, how good, or even graphing it, you know, here's a better way to, to, to for visually to people capture that. I'm like, oh, that was good. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I, though I surprised myself the other day at some a student's uh, kind of pre-dissertation uh, defense, because I, I was the only one in the room who kept saying, you're not statistically doing this right at all, and I'm going, oh, I can't even believe I'm doing this. <laughs> so I surprised myself then, but, it, you know, it's not my forte. Um, you know, recently I thought I feel like I'm a fairly good communicator, but it's I think um, conf- uh, conflict is a struggle for me. Um, you know, and I've read uh, uh, crucial conversations and other things like that. How do you move through something that's difficult? I just had the, our team, uh, so I read the four disciplines of execution about how to move your thing, move a, an enterprise forward. Look, I'm I'm in charge of a huge enterprise, and I'm like, how did I ever get in charge of this? Um, and so I needed to develop a different skill set to do what I'm doing now. Yeah. And it's not that I came with it, 
Um, and it's funny because I talked about this friend. I said, I need to go get an MBA or something. And she goes, no, read this book. You'll be fine. Um, and the book has been very, very helpful in how to actually move an agenda forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, it depends upon where you, what your tasks are that reveal, oh, I remember, this isn't such a great, I'm, I have a difficulty with this. Or, anyway. Well, I have one last question. If you could be anything other than a physical therapist, what would you be? Wow. I have no, let me think if I even have a clue. You, every other question you've asked me, you've said it, and I, something's popped into my head before I could ever answer. Like, yeah. Every time you've gone, I've said, oh, da-da-da-da. It's like before you even finish the question. On this one? Uh, i got to stump you somehow. I, you might have. I mean... It's so funny because all I I go back to all the things I thought I was going to be. Like before I even was going to be the um, French major, I was going to run, uh, like I was going to run a stables, like be a. Um, so I did horseback riding. I went to um, a horse master school. I mm. I saved up money from high school. Went to a horse master school. How to run a barn. How to teach people. How to train horses. All that. Even though I went to college, in the back of my head was, I'm going to this, but that's what I'm going to be. And, um, but then, you know, way led on to way, and mm-hmm. I never came back. I did ride. I keep, I've ridden again, but, it, you know. So, you know, I, I'd probably do something very to- totally different. That's all I can. It, it'd just be totally, totally different. Totally different. Yeah. You know, like that. That's totally different. It's totally down another path. You know, it's not healthcare. It's mm-hmm. not whatever. I'd just be on some other planet doing <laughs> doing something. Um, far and far away. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, being a, you know, so the thing about the languages, I really wanted to do, you know, have a multiple languages. I like traveling. My parents traveled tremendously. My dad for his work, and I, I love that aspect. Um, I would love to be able to speak multiple languages and be engaged in multiple cultures and mm. and um I don't know what I would have done with it but that's I would have done something with it. You feel like the Anthony Bourdain he's the yeah. he's that traveler, right? Is yeah. that his name? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I just I like that. Then the wildlife biology thing I worked with such a weird person that it was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, is this what happens? But I love the park uh, like even in retirement, I've thought about going and volunteering in the national parks because I do love the outdoors. Mm-hmm. So I can see myself have ultimately gone down that path. There needed to be a few more people involved. It was so we were so by ourselves. I was like, there's nobody out here but me, a trail, and I'm counting things out here. I'm getting bored. Um, so I don't know. I'd probably go back to something I was initially going to yeah. do. One of those forks in the road, because mm-hmm. they're still in the back of my head. You know how I enjoyed those things, right. but I didn't do them. They're a big part of who you are. Yeah, yeah. Are we good? I think we're good, Andrea. <laughs>